Welcome to Tuesday evening chapel. Thank you for coming. You guys doing all right? Good, 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 good. Nothing like a Colorado spring day. Yeah. We are here knowing that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Amen? Amen. We're privileged to have a special guest with us this evening, um, Dr. Jim Bond. He's General Superintendent uh, Emeritus through the Church of the Nazarene. And he also has served here on faculty and also as chaplain. So let's welcome Dr. Bond. Dr. Bond, thank you for making time to be with us this evening. Amen. Let's all stand as we worship this evening. God's love for us is amazing. And it goes on and on and, and it never fails. And that's what we're going to sing about this evening. Well, thank you very much for that good music. I, I even knew one of those songs. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Chaplain Jonathan, for inviting me to be here tonight. Always love coming and being here. This is, this is my family. Is that okay if I say I'm a part of the NBC family? Sure. Okay. You take in anybody, won't you? So I. Delighted to be here tonight, and uh, my message is pretty simple. It's about Jesus. Is that all right? Amen. I have a whole lot of text, but I just have one message these days in my life. I find as I get a little older, I'm focusing more and more on Jesus. I ran across a wonderful prayer by a guy named... Uh, Richard of Chichester. He was a 13th century English bishop. And he said, It is my prayer, O Lord, to know Jesus more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly. That's me. My text is in Colossians tonight. Chapter 1. And I'll begin at verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. The Word of the Lord. If you were to list the men and women that could be called significant world changers, you would have to include a man named John Wesley. Don't have time to talk about John Wesley much, but he's a man who changed the climate, the moral and spiritual climate of his day in England. It spread across this country 
and continues to be a tremendous legacy, an ongoing legacy. John Wesley's secret, I think, is wrapped up in what he called my prayer of self-surrender. Oh Lord Jesus, I give you my body, my soul, my substance, my friends, my fame, my liberty, and my life. Dispose of me and all that is mine as it seems best to you. And then he adds, I'm now not mine, but yours. Therefore, claim me as your right, keep me as your charge, and love me as your child. There's a little phrase there that kind of has, has me in its grip this evening. That little phrase, claim me as your right. Question. Does Jesus have the right, the authority, to claim us? Does he have the right to claim my life and every aspect of my life? Body, mind, soul, resources, talents, energy, time, every day, all the day, 24-7, week in and week out. Does he have that kind of right to claim my whole life? And if so, why? What's so special about this man, Jesus? He was born in a very obscure little village on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. Lived a very nondescript kind of life for 30 years, knowing essentially the carpenter shop. Lived um, in a little place that we do not know very much about it all in those years and for three fleeting years then he traveled around as an itinerant teacher preacher never traveled more than 200 miles from the place of his birth never did any of the things that we associate with greatness never attended a bible college never amassed a fortune never wrote a book never held public office and at age 33 his world fell apart the religious authorities made false accusations against him. His friends deserted him. His enemies put him through a mock trial. He was convicted. He was nailed to a tree. Died like a helpless animal. And they took his lifeless body down from the cross and put it in a borrowed grave. Are you kidding me? You're telling me that man has the right to the place of supremacy in my life? Well, I've reached some definite conclusions about this man, Jesus. Frankly, Jesus is of absolutely no importance whatsoever. Unless he is of supreme importance. He doesn't count for anything unless he counts for everything. He's no more important than any man or woman who ever walked on planet Earth. Unless he was infinitely more than just another human being. But I contend that Jesus, man of, Na man of Nazareth, man of history, was more than just a mortal, finite human being. I contend that he is of supreme importance and ultimately he counts for everything. 
so is worth my most serious consideration as well as yours and the consideration of every person in this world tonight. Or do I get the authority from, from such a statement as I make? Well, I get it from the divinely inspired written word of God. Thank God for the written word. Sally and I read that every morning and often I say, I'm, I'm so glad that God gave us the written word. Where would we be without it? So there are numerous Christological passages that kind of have me in their grip this day. These days I'm focused more on those passages than anything else. And this Colossians passage is one of those. I'm struck with that phrase, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Why does he deserve the place of supremacy in your life and mine? First of all, because he is God. This man, Jesus, is God. Paul says it this way in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, I, I understand that that little word image is kind of a tricky word. We've got a really brilliant professor here that could help me with that, if he would. But I've read that it, uh, it could mean portrait. It could mean photograph. It kind of has me thinking, you know, how, how interesting it is that if Jesus were to walk in the door back there tonight and I would say to you, hey, Jesus just walked in and you took your little phone camera out and snapped a picture, you would have just taken a picture of the face of God. Wow. You remember the 14th chapter of John where Jesus talks about going away and if I go away, I'll come again and receive you unto myself and where I am there you may be also. And uh, he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, wait a minute. We don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Thank God for the question because Jesus then made this great statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And at the end of that statement, he said, from now on you do know him and have seen him. And this time Philip says, hey, wait a minute. Just show us the Father. Let us see him and that will be enough. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you such a long time and don't you know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. So those who have seen Jesus have seen God. That's the message of the book of God. That's the truth that is at the vital center, the red heart of the message that we proclaim from the book of God. One of my favorite writers is Philip Yancey. Maybe you read some of his stuff. What's so amazing about grace? Or one that I've enjoyed as well as the Jesus I never knew. One of those books, and I've read three or four of them, Yancey said, I sometimes ask myself, why, Yancey, are you a Christian? And he, he said, I reduced my answers to two. First of all, because of the lack of good alternatives. <laughs> and secondly, because of Jesus. Just simply Jesus. Jesus, he said. 
If I can find that note about this, Jesus, brilliant, and I'm quoting from him, brilliant, untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, and paradoxically humble. And then he says, Jesus stands up to my scrutiny. He is who I want my God to be. I like that. Go back and read again the Gospels and just keep your eye fastened on Jesus and here's what you'll discover. It's like ripping open the very heart that beats at the center of the universe. It lets you walk right into the heart of the infinite God himself and you can't help but like what you see. In Jesus we see God. I'm very fond of the Gospel of John. Spent a lot of time in John. Love the, the uh, prologue, the first 18 verses of the book of John. Don't have time to go into that except verse 18 kind of summarizes those first 17 verses. Where he says, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Hallelujah. Jesus came to reveal to us God because He is God. So because of that, first of all, He actually deserves the place of supremacy in your life and mine because He is God. But there's more. Jesus deserves the supreme place in our lives because He is Creator. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created, all things were created by Him. Make no mistake about Paul's thinking. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is therein. This word has great relevance for us today because regrettably there is a lot of heated controversy among Christians about the doctrine of beginnings, the doctrine of origins. I think that's most unfortunate. Um, some Christians believe that there really is only one way to view the beginnings, and if you interpret it different than theirs, you're somehow less than a biblical Christian. I find it very disturbing that some of our fundamentalist brothers and sisters, and they are indeed our brothers and sisters in Christ, have made this issue sort of the litmus test for one's evangelical orthodoxy. And I think that's most unfortunate. Do you know the position of the Church of the Nazarene? Very simply stated is this. We know the who of creation, and as to the how of creation, we leave that to your own individual judgment. You can make up your own mind about how God created it. But we do believe that God himself is the creator. You remember the writer of Hebrews said in, in the first chapter, in the, he said in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he is speaking to us, how? By his Son, whom he made the heir of all things, and through him, through whom he made the universe. That's the Word of God. This Jesus has the right to the place of supremacy in your life and mine because He's Creator. 
He is the one in whom you and I live and move and have our very being. All things were created by him, verse 16 says. But there's another little phrase that's powerfully important. All things were created by him and for him. Wow. So he's the end for which all created things exist. He is the one in whom all created ones live and move and have our very being. And he brought us into being to serve his will and live to his glory. I come back to John Wesley. He wrote, It pleased the all-wise God to rise in the greatness of his strength, create the heavens and the earth and all things that are therein. Having prepared all things for him, he created man in his own image after his own likeness. And what was the end of his creation or the purpose of his creation? It was one and no other. That we might know and love and serve this great creator to all eternity. That is our reason for being. The old Westminster Catechism said a little simpler than that. What is the chief end of man? It is to love and glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm working on that enjoy part. How do you enjoy God? That's another time, another subject. I'll be back. So you really cannot love and glorify and enjoy and serve God as he intends unless he has the place of supremacy in your life. Christ is the creator and the end for which all of creation were brought, it was brought into being. Wonderful little, I suppose, a benediction Paul has right at the end of chapter 11 in Romans. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. So yes, he has the right to claim me. He has the right to the place of supremacy in my life. Why? Because he's God. Because he's creator. You still have this clock on the desk, don't you? <laughs> Who put that thing on? Are we through at 10 after? Do you have any authority around here, John? <laughs> okay. He's God, His Creator, and the last one, He is Redeemer. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the way He says it. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And with that simple statement, Paul moves from talking about the old world, the creation of the old world, and talks about a new kind of creation now that's possible in this world through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So go back to the beginning again for just a moment. When God created us, placed us in this world, He endowed us with the freedom to choose our own destiny. And we know the story. In that freedom, we walked away from the good, and godly and holy creator God and turn to our own way. I like best the way it's said in the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53. Where Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. 
to her own way. That's the basic problem of sin. And that's the problem God has to deal with in your life and in mine. So, Dr. Greathouse, incidentally, I think, had a great little phrase. He calls this, I refer to it as our own wayness. Dr. Greathouse calls it the ego bias. But essentially, it's the self at the center in control. And God wants to be in control. God wants to be in the place of supremacy. So the pattern of determining our own way without regard to the Creator God led us out of light into darkness. It led us out of holiness into sin. And it led us out of life into death. And left to ourselves, we could not find our way out of the darkness. Left to ourselves, we could not break the chains of sin. And left to ourselves, we could not avoid the end result of the choice we made. And that choice leads us to death. We have no power over those things. So it remained for the Creator God Himself to take action and rescue His created beings from our hopeless dilemma. Martin Luther said, Our plight is a God which is our plight is a knot which needs a God's help to unravel. True. So it remained for the Creator God to come to the rescue, and that's precisely what He did through Jesus Christ. We're back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 in Colossians. Paul says, For He, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow! Hallelujah. Sometimes we use words interchangeably as, they mean, as though they mean the same thing. They don't. And I, I'm very much aware of the time. And I know that you have about 30 minutes before you go back to class. So uh, <laughs> nervous laughter all over the place, huh? I'll hurry. Those words have distinct meaning. First of all, there's forgiveness. That's the word we associate with justification. It describes a legal term. It is a, the use of a legal kind of language that describes something that happens in heaven or, if you will, happens in the very heart of God. God forgives us when we come to Him and confess our sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive. So there is forgiveness. There is justification. And that's the beginning of the new life that is ours in Jesus Christ. But when Paul uses the word redemption, that's a broad term. It could also be used for salvation. Or it could even be used for the word sanctification. Because that word sanctification is kind of the umbrella term that we use over the whole process of of being initially saved, and to use the, the, the language of sanctification, we are initially sanctified. That's when we're born again. We're forgiven. We're justified. And then we enter into progressive sanctification, begin to walk with God in Jesus Christ, and we come to realize our need for a deeper work of divine grace. We run straight on into the problem God has to deal with in your life and mine. We're forgiven. That's the good news. 
And as you walk in the light, suddenly you run head on into some strong and hard sayings of Jesus, like Matthew 16, 24. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily, Luke adds that little word, and follow me. So we come to a point as we walk in the light as believers where we realize the truth that sin is twofold in its essence. It is an act you commit, you tell a lie, you steal, you commit adultery. And from the acts of sin there is forgiveness. But there is also, secondly, that very principle of sin instilled within us. This desire to do my own thing, to have my own way. And when we use the term redemption and salvation and, and even sanctification, we're talking about the fact that God goes deeper than just forgiving us of the acts of sin and deals with the sin issue in our lives and cleanses us as we walk in the light and pray the prayer that John Wesley prayed, the prayer of self-surrender. And we yield ourselves totally to God and surrender the place of supremacy to Him. He comes to cleanse us from this inclination, not leaving us in a vacuum, but fills us fully with His Spirit, which is the very Spirit of the living Jesus Himself. We call that entire sanctification. And there's still progressive sanctification that leads us on the way because we've not reached the end yet. We're still being perfected, being shaped more and more into the image of God in Jesus Christ until finally we come to glorification or final sanctification. So, just threw that in, you know. I should have had you come up here and talk about that, Janine, because that's part of a holiness class I taught here a couple of years ago. Well, I, I have to quit now. How does God effect this glorious forgiveness and redemption through Jesus? Jesus, because He is God, He became a man, he died on a cross, and He rose again from the dead. Amen. Simple story, powerful story, the greatest story the world's ever heard. I have a question for you tonight before I leave. It's a pretty good question for Bible college students as you come to the, near, the, the end of a semester like this. Do you know Jesus as Savior? If you do, say amen. amen. Praise God. That's why you're here, because you want a Christ-centered education, I know. Some of you are preparing for ministry. Others going into, and that's a, that's a broad term that includes everything that we do as Christians, to be sure, but preparing for full-time ministry in the Church of Jesus Christ as preacher or teacher or whatever. But the ultimate equipping for teaching, preaching, ministry or whatever is found in the prayer that John Wesley prayed when he yielded his life totally to God and God used him in ways far beyond he ever dreamed. So I ask you, have you said the big yes to Jesus Christ? Is He the sovereign one in your life? Is He on the throne? 
Oh, that's more important than anything else you're doing for the rest of your life to ensure that Jesus is in the proper place and he is the Lord of your life. This and I'm through. F.B. Meyer is a great preacher, early part of the last century, and he used to say, in all real believers, Jesus is present. In some, he's not only present, but he's prominent. In others, all too few, he's not only present and prominent, but he is preeminent. That's what he wants to be, that in all things, even in your heart and mind, that he might have the place of supremacy. Well, amen. I'll give you a little test as you go out tonight, and if you do well, I'll give you an A on it. Thanks for coming and thanks for letting me preach tonight. I just have to scratch that preacher's itch every now and then and you help me tonight. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here. Sorry I got so long, but God bless you all.